delightful little email missive from the president of the University of California system saying, we are launching this amazing initiative to improve community health and welfare. So it was under the rubric of sustainability and technology. And this program was going to offer anybody who was affiliated with the university, students, staff, faculty, um, a Fitbit. So one of these little digital watches. Um, in order for participants to track their efforts to walk, bike, um, skateboard, whatever, do all sorts of other activities that rely on human bodily power, rather than using electricity, petrol, natural gas, you weren't supposed to, supposed to walk up the stairs instead of using the elevator, um, you know, bike to work rather than driving to work, things like this. At the same time, this program was um, going to offer the opportunity for participants to log and monitor their food intake, which would then provide people with information about how to make more sustainable food choices and even improve personal nutrition and nutritional health. And so the way this is going to work, you would have your Fitbit, and of course you, there would be then an online app system, so you could conveniently download to your personal mobile device, um, and this would be connected to a university-wide tracking program. And so you can easily see how all these small changes in your daily life, you know, you took 10,000 steps rather than riding the elevator three times, um, and you ate this instead of this, would cumul cumulatively add up in significant ways that would help the university pursue its green energy goals. We have this program in the University of California system that, like, by 2020, they're supposed to be a completely green, you know, um, or they call it zero electricity, whatever it is, campaign. And now because the University of California system has 10 university campuses, so there's like several hundred thousand people in the state of California who are affiliated with the University of California, this program had a competitive element. Campus totals would be tallied, so University of California Santa Cruz versus Berkeley versus UCLA, um, and the campus with the greatest total would win. So there was never really any information about how these totals were going to be calculated and what the winning campus would get, aside from the glory of being, you know, the winner. But the message and all of the campaign materials was very clear. It was our responsibility as members of the university to do our part by harnessing our bodily metrics to a technological system that would benefit the university, namely by helping the university reduce its own utility expenses, right? That's what this was about, reducing utility expenses, saving the university money. At the same time that this came out, my own health insurance company introduced a similar initiative. Enrollees in the healthcare system could receive a Fitbit or something similar to track daily activities and consumption habits. Now, the health insurance company promoted this as a great way for individuals to learn more about themselves and introduce improvements into their daily lives, namely to discuss to discover how much you were eating and how to make adjustments accordingly presumably by decreasing calories and particular types of food, while at the same time increasing physical activity. These results would then be reported back to personal health care providers, so my doctor would have access to my results, and to a team of health care experts employed by the health insurance company. Right? So they could then tailor information for me about my health, nutritional status, physical activity, and help me make better choices. Right? So in both cases, the University of California system and my insurance company were promoting the benefits of technology for health and well-being of the person, society, the environment, and the larger political economy, right? Because really it was about the bottom line. It was about saving money. 
for the health insurance company, it was also about saving expenses for medical care, right? If I make changes in my daily life, that is going to decrease the possibility that I have a health-related disorder later, which will decrease the amount of money the health care provider has to pay to my doctor for treatments, for pharmaceuticals, for all of these other things. But what this meant was that everything I put into my body or did with my body was now directly tied to a corporate entity, right? That was their information. To some extent, they were controlling my body. These were being done under the rubric of social justice concerns, right? About my personal health and well-being, about societal health and well-being. And so these are becoming very, very common, particularly in the U.S., but elsewhere in the world. But what's lost in these fascinations with technology and the new forms of knowledge made possible by these technologies is a discussion about the social justice implications, the other social justice implications, right? What happens when I turn over intimate knowledge of my body, personal information about myself to somebody else? What happens to questions and issues of equity, equality, fairness, and freedom when digital technologies are entangled with food and food-related practices, right? These are the other social justice questions. So over the past 20 years, as digital technologies become ever more commonplace in food systems at every level, from personal and intimate activities of cooking and eating to global industrial agriculture and food manufacturing systems, they have created new methods and techniques for growing, preparing, distributing, and disposing of food. And in so doing, they've created new possibilities for solving critical food justice concerns about access, safety, equity, transparency, all things we've been talking about today. And so here's some other examples, and then we're going to kind of look at some other, um, how food, digital technologies are being caught up in some other food activist movements. So in response to the food scares of the early 1990s, or the 1990s and early 2000s, food manufacturers introduced tracking systems to monitor and regulate food at every moment in the food system. And so here's some examples of the, the RIFID chips, right? Barcodes and things. And so animals and crops can now be tagged with RIFID chips that are then scanned and edited and entered into database systems to track them as they move through the food system. Intelligent design has now expanded this to include detailed information about temperature controls, movement, how long things have been on a truck or on the shelves, lot number, who the inspector was, all of these different types of information are now being contained in these ribbon chips that are then attached to food. Manufacturers, regulatory officials, and consumers can now be assured of the origins of their food as well as its timeliness and security through the manufacturing and distribution process and the security of the food. When problems arise, they can easily be tracked back to a particular moment and place in the food chain whether it's in transit, in the factory, in the feedlot, on the farm. Problems can also be traced back to a particular individual, a grower, a processor, a packager, or a driver, thus ensuring that blame and retribution can be personalized, right? Now you know exactly who's responsible and that person can be punished. At the same time, these measures are also part of food movements tied to more artisanal heritage concerns. They're not just with that industrial food manufacturing system. You even have things like Spanish jamón that gets tagged with a riffage chip so that consumers can be guaranteed they know exactly which pig that jamón leg came from, where it was grown, 
Um, and that then is tied into the Spanish economy about terroir, right? So this can be um, the authenticity of the product and all of the other qualities that come with that authenticity um, are then communicated in that riffing chip, right? So this protects both um, national economies, regional economies that are tied up into those kind of heritage foods markets, but also protects the consumer who can be assured they're consuming authentically local food. So these are kind of questions of authenticity, safety, and comfort. But digital technologies can also provide consumers with a sense of entertainment and fun, as well as ethical concerns, also things that we've been talking about. So manufacturers can be quite playful with barcodes, right, in ways that create aesthetic forms of their products. And manufacturers can use these barcodes to engage their consumers with ethical questions. And so these are just some examples of things that I found, right? This is a, um, you can use barcodes like this, but it's for a brand of spaghetti pasta, right? Or um, this one here is a barcode that was used for kind of um, fair trade animal concerns, you know, wildlife concerns with WWF, the World Wildlife Federation, right? There's all sorts of things. Frito-Lay has some really lovely ones where um, they're trying to use, promote values of um, locally grown, sustainable, artisanal food you know, in their potato chips and fruit on um, granola bars and things like that. But this is lovely. Um, so they've got flowers growing out of the top of their barcode, right? Now, take the example of Frito Lay. Um, they began, Frito Lay was one of the first manufacturers to start using active barcodes that consumers could scan and then follow those schemes for more information. They could get recipes, they could get nutritional information, they could even get entertainment. One brand of Fritos Latest Chips invites consumers to follow the barcode to an informational video that is a documentary of a farm-to-shelf to table life cycle of the chips that are in the package. So it follows the potato grower, and then it follows the potato as it goes from the field to the truck to the plant to the table. Um, and then another Frito-Lay's product features barcodes that allow consumers to link to exclusive music videos and other fan communities, so it's really part of an entertainment um, community that's all done through the barcode. In a slightly different way, um, digital technologies are being used to enhance animal welfare, such as in the dairy industry. Dairy cows can be tagged with electronic chips or collars that are scanned and that allow them access to an individualized milking stall. Once inside the milking stall, sensors measure everything from the cow's milk output to the amount of grain they consume. Sometimes they can um, calculate how much the cow weighs, how they know how frequently the cows are going through these stalls. And cows have figured out how to work these systems to their own advantage. So they can um, you know, go into the stall as many times as possible because it's not being controlled by farmers, it's being controlled by the chip. Um, and even when the chips are then set to only allow cow access so many times during the day, the cows figure out how to work around that and hold the door open for their friends. Um, and so by doing this kind of scanning, by chipping the cows that they'll have access to these um, 
dairy stalls, it can allow a farmer to do all sorts of oversight of the animals. It can preset the amount of grain the cow eats. Um, it can allow farmers to deliver antibiotics to certain animals, things like that. And as such, these new technologies are supposed to allow for better oversight of cows' health and welfare. But as we just saw, it actually allows for cows to have agency too. Now here, this um, is an advertisement for one of these digital types of milking systems. And here, it's, look, you've got the farmer sitting here dealing with his cows. He's not even in the dairy barn with his cows anymore, right? And so it's smart investment, reduced labor costs, um, fewer milking points, you can cut water and energy bills, and you can upgrade your system, right? Like you can have the most digitally advanced cows right there. Um, and so what, you know, what we see is kind of how these digital technologies are really, really escalating in every dimension of the food system. Now, digital tracking technologies have thus become ubiquitous as forms of information, guarantees of security and safety, and techniques for transparency and authenticity. Yet the potentially productive aspects of digital food technologies have also revealed new uncertainties about social justice concerns with privacy, surveillance, accountability, and bodily integrity. Tracking devices do not just provide information and assurances about the quality and nature of food products, they also directly link practices and products with individuals who can be shamed, blamed, or otherwise made responsible. The most personal aspects of people's daily lives are not just revealed and documented, but they're turned into forms of data that can be used for other purposes and then regulated, right? This is part of this Internet of Things. There's data, point, there are data points everywhere. So everything we do is now being tracked, which then turns into these forms of governance and regulation. And so one of the um, just kind of things that's happening is people, individuals, animals, crops, food, everything, even as there's kind of this growth of intimacy and belonging and shared experience and all this information gets put out, everything's now being alienated to another level, right? People are being alienated from their own bodies, cows are being alienated from the farmers who feed them, um, and food is getting increasingly alienated from just the actual act of ingesting it and enjoying it. And I just, I found this um, lovely article when I was looking for more information about digital technologies and milk production, and there's this article from Der Spiegel that came out recently, and it's warning the changes in EU policy regarding milk quotas and the disappearance of small dairy farms will mean that farmers have to produce more and more just to survive, and the outcome of all of this, the, the article warned, was that new technologies will make it easier for farmers to increase milk production, turning their cows into machines, into robots, meaning cows are no longer cows, right? And cows are no longer going to be these animals that live in the meadows, they're going to be animals that live in a robotic, technological environment. So food activists have approached these competing concerns in different ways. In some cases, the responses have emphasized the greater good of the whole over the needs and concerns of any one individual. This certainly comes out in health-related matters where activists are thinking about personal health as a form of collective property, right, that contributes to the well-being of the community environment. And so this is the ideal of the greater social good. And this then appears in perspectives that promote personal choice as something that's monitored and determined by collective consensus especially in cases where consumers 
feel that they have to follow the ethical and environmental implications of the foods they consume. So personal choice becomes something that everybody gets to decide and then dictate. Now, within this kind of context, larger context of food activists or people thinking about these issues, there's another group of food activists. And their approach is primarily focused on the challenges and limits of existing food technologies, especially for critical social justice concerns of autonomy, independence, and equity. And so these folks are using new technologies to change the nature of food itself. And so they're just deliberately focusing on disrupting the food system. They identify themselves with a bunch of different names, inventors, entrepreneurs, citizen scientists, and hackers. And they're really focused on upsetting and redefining the structures, limits, and possibilities of food. And so they're carving out new spaces for social justice questions. And so here, um, I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically about some of these food activists. And I like to use the term food hacker because I think it's kind of an interesting spin on that. And they're using digital technologies in all sorts of ways. It isn't just social media platforms, but they're using new developments in photography and video. They're using Internet of Things algorithms. They're using remote access to get into other forms of equipment. They're using open access knowledge, and they're using open source software. So they're really taking on um, digital, the digital world in all sorts of ways. run through a few of these. Now, molecular gastronomy is one obvious example of this. Um, as we see chemists and chefs collaborating with labs and kitchens to rethink the structures and natures of food, not just rethink, but change them completely, right? Transform. So it's basic chemistry, um, identifying the basic properties of a compound and then reworking it into something else. Um, but it's also part of a deliberate experimentation to rethink our expectations about food and food experiences. So questions like, what happens if we turn duck meat into foam? Is it still duck? Is it something else? What is that thing? What if we extract all of the juice and color from a blueberry, leaving the berry colorless, and then re-inject that juice and color into something else, like a potato? What happens, right? That's uh, uh, playing with the structures. Um, you know, what happens if we take fish and chips and turn that into a vapor to be inhaled? What is that experience? And so by denaturing food, molecular gastronomy challenges consumers to rethink their expectations of what food is and what it could be. And that then opens up possibilities for extending greater legitimacy to alternative foods, right? Not just kind of alternative systems of foods, but foods that don't look like what we think they should look like including synthetic foods, and particularly foods that might feed more people at a cheaper price. Um, so molecular gastronomy is kind of one end of this, the really chemistry focused, but we've got people at the other end, like artists, who are playing with the boundaries of food and people's perceptions of food. And so probably all of you or many of you are familiar, this is Lady Gaga and her infamous meat dress from several years ago. And so this was a piece of performance art that she wore, and it was shocking. And it was shocking precisely because it played with expectations about the limits and possibilities of food. Raised the question, can food be a textile? There people found this problematic. But there are all sorts of other things that are foods and textiles simultaneously. There we go. 
Um, but the dress also raised questions about aesthetics. Is it disgusting to touch and wear raw, bloody things? There are other contexts in which that happens, athletes and clothing. Um, and this dress inspired questions about the ethics of food. Is it ethically appropriate to be wearing meat? Is that akin to wearing leather in fur? Are there differences in the types of things that are ethical food products, right, or ethical animal products? Um, just recently I read another article on a, another type of wearable food, and this is um, innovations in clothing made from mushrooms. And so these are mushrooms, and you, it's, it's all kind of a fungi dress, and I think the idea is that you can wear it, and then you can consume it later. Less strange, but it really is another question about um, recycling and repurposing, and what are the other lives of food products. Okay, now these are kind of more elitist concerns, but they do raise questions about ethics and access and things like that. Um, more specifically, there's kind of another strand um, called, being called disruptive food technologies. Many of these are coming out of Silicon Valley in California, um, the land of startup companies where creativity and innovation are the goals. Disrupting expectations about food is where these new food innovations are happening. Um, Reimagine Food is one startup group that's drawing on the tech world, both the philosophies and approaches of the tech world, and the new forms of technology, including digital technology. So food is being created through collaborative work between computer scientists, engineers, designers, artists, chefs, and just people who like food. Um, and so they're coming together to play an experiment, but also trying to think about how to use their skills to improve the global system, uh, the global food system, and ensure equitable access to food. So one of the explicit goals is about creating new forms of food technology that can actually make food access possible. Um, one of the projects of this reimagined food group is called Digital Gastronomy. Um, and it's a, a project to think about how to use technology to enhance the food services experience. Um, on the one hand, it's about creating new experiences, new opportunities for chefs. How can chefs rethink the restaurant experience using technology, particularly digital technology? Um, but it's also about helping consumers have a better experience. One extreme of this is creating app-based menus where you can just go in, you can pre-order your food. You're seeing this all over the place now, right? You can pre-order your food and pick it up at the restaurant. Starbucks is even doing this. You can pre-order your coffee if you don't have time to actually go into coffee and place into Starbucks and place an order. You can put it on your app and it'll be ready for you at the counter. Um, but kind of the other end of this, there's questions about whether digital technologies can allow us to put our personal information into a system and a chef can create foods that are better for us. Can they create healthier foods based on our bodily composition? Or if I'm sick, the chef has already created a special meal for me to help me heal. Okay. Um, so these things are happening in a lab, they're happening in restaurants, but we can do it at home now too, right? Recent advances in technology um, means that things are cheaper. We can buy this equipment, molecular gastronomy kits, you can buy them for yourself. You can go to the hardware store and buy all of the supplies and do all of these things. Think about these questions. Apps now with 99 cents, 
You can download all sorts of things to your mobile devices and have some of the same experiences. Now, even though the thing to think about here is even though these technologies are becoming more affordable and they're promoting ideas of equity, they may not really be that egalitarian at the end of the day. Access is still restricted to those who can purchase those, who have the knowledge about those things. And so with this group of kind of people focused on disruptive food technologies, there's another group of food activists. And these are the folks who are really thinking about the democratization questions underlying these kind of new food justice movements. These are folks who share a commitment to making food, science, art, and experience available to everyone. They're really concerned with the flattening out with the um, accessibility to everyone of social justice goals and food experiences. So, um, in vitro meat is one dimension of that. Um, even though it's still uber expensive, there are a group of food activists who see this as being a way to provide um, healthy meat protein to people throughout the world. Right? It's going to eventually, the goal will eventually be that we don't need to buy food, we don't need to buy meat in the grocery store anymore. You can just grow your own and all the personal choices um, and the expenses are minimized with that, right? You can do anything you want with that. Um, mindful of time, so let me skip ahead. Okay. But then, kind of a group of folks who are even more kind of nitty-gritty, nuts and bolts, approaches to personalizing and taking over the food system for themselves are underground, well, not necessarily underground, but they are um, food hacker groups who tend to kind of float around and hang out in underground places. They're in people's garages. They're in people's basements. They are in restaurants that are converted and reappropriated. Um, warehouses, kind of anywhere groups of hackers generally gather. There are food hackers who are thinking about some of these questions about how to promote citizen science or the democratization of science. They're really interested and invested in bringing the techniques of science and technology to ordinary people around the world. Not just here, but in Indonesia, in Africa, wherever people might not have access to those things, um, to science and technology, it's these food hackers are really committed to making that available. So in one food hacking lab that I visited, um, the participants were trying to figure out how to create a microscope from basic elements, uh, basic electronic digital parts that they were pulling together from an iPhone and I don't even remember what all they had, just all sorts of stuff that they picked up at the hardware store and the grocery store and they found on their way to the walk. This is kind of on their walk to the hacker space. This is just kind of a, a random assortment of things people gathered on their way. And so they were doing this. Here's the microscope in action. Um, some other things. They were thinking about how you can do food safety, how you can test food yourself, actually look at what what's inside the internal properties of foods. Um, is it what you think it is? Can you see other organisms? How can people in their own homes kind of use science and technology to do these things? A second project that they did was to um, figure out how to reverse engineer a spice packet. 
So they were concerned with, okay, so I go into a restaurant and they have a flavor profile of X, Y, and Z that supposedly comes from certain spices. How do I know what those things are? Kentucky Fried Chicken was the first thing they looked at, right? Because the whole spice pack was supposed to be a secret recipe, right? How can we make it not secret? How can we make this transparent? So the question was, we don't have a million dollar mass spectrometer to do this, and we shouldn't have to have a million dollar mass spectrometer to do this. How can we do this with just everyday things that we found along the way? And this is just some of the random stuff that they had. Using online um, open access chemistry journals and then some other open source programming that they got down. Um, I'm not sure where they found it, but open source stuff. They figured out that you can pretty easily take a coffee filter and a magic marker and some water and reverse engineer the spice profile. They were able to do basic spectral analysis and figure out kind of what some of the different seasonings were in the spice packet. Okay, so some of the folks in this group were also artists and are also concerned not just with making science and technology available, but with making art available, that art becomes a social justice concern as well. And so these are folks working with the Center for Genomic Gastronomy. And one of their projects was to do a small tasting workshop. And what they did with this was they figured out how to use basic chemistry to um, extract air samples that they then put into meringues that they then handed out to people to taste. So you could taste air pollution in different places. So it was a project to think about how different places taste differently. Right? So an interesting question. It upset the question of terroir. It's not just about taste of the place coming through the ground. It's taste of place coming through the air. But it was also disrupting what people thought about environmentalist questions. Should have found it more than 10 minutes there for postponing. And then, um, you know, they just parked their little cart on the street and had people stop by and hand out samples, which then opened up discussions, which then continued on in virtual discussions online, right? So, projects such as these, you know, from food hacking to the more modernist cuisine. Um, are really provoking important questions about the limits and possibilities of food. What happens to food when it's not just decentered but denatured? What happens to the per performative dimensions of food? What happens to the experiential dimensions of food? And what happens when these issues of personalization, of freedom, of autonomy, um, equity, and equality start to become real? In, by using these new digital technologies. And so these are really the questions of social justice that these types of food activists are working towards. They're trying to rethink power relationships, questions of agency, questions of resistance, questions of complicity. And even, I think, fundamentally by democratizing um, access not just to food, but to art, to science, they're also thinking about how the food experience is not just tied to the consumption of a thing, it's tied to forms of experience, notably pleasure, disgust, all of these things. And so these more experiential dimensions also need to be and can be democratized through these technologies. 